This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. You know, we've been building games for a long time, like narrative experiences. Like it's all about immersion. But how can you be immersed when you're in a consumer VR and you really can't even see your full body? I thought I thought that was like a like a spark of a beginning where we thought, wait a minute, can we actually build a technology where you and your friends are in full body VR and you can interact with one another? <laughs> And that was the start. From South China Morning Post, this is Inside China Tech. Insights into what matters. Come work for us because we are 996. Are you okay? I started Alibaba 1999 in my apartment. What's your problem? Speed and data. And that's where China comes in. Here's your host, Zen Su. Hi everyone, welcome back to a new episode of Inside China Tech. I'm Zensu, a technology reporter with the South China Morning Post. Today we're going to talk about Sandbox VR and why Steve Zhao, who is the guy you heard earlier, decided to bet all his life savings to create hyper-realistic VR games from scratch, even as the company was running out of money and on the brink of failure. Where are we going then? That was our producer, Yang Yang. Oh, we're going to Sandbox VR in Jimsha Zui in Hong Kong and it is raining cats and dogs right now. So what does the company do? So Sandbox VR is a very immersive sort of virtual reality experience. You get to wear like a VR helmet or like, oh you get to wear like a VR headset and like Sandbox VR offers a full body VR gaming experience. It was established in Hong Kong in 2016 and has since raised $68 million. We went to talk to Steve Zhao, who is the founder and CEO of Sandbox. Hi, you're Steve. Hi, Steve. Sorry. Steve is in his mid-30s, but he started creating games when he was 13 years old. So when I was 13 years old, um, that was the first time I started programming games. And building games is just something that I really enjoyed doing as a pastime. And um, when I was in college, you know, I... I skip classes so I can build games because I just love doing it. Um, but it's also because at that time, I also use it as a means to kind of pay for my tuition. Instead of bartending or working at a McDonald's, Steve decided to earn some extra income by developing games. That was in early 2000s when PC gaming was still very popular and users were very happy to pay for popular PC games. It was a good time for Steve, and he even started his first gaming company in his dormitory, like many of the great entrepreneurs of today. I started a company called Blue Tea Games in college, but kind of like for fun. And at that time, I worked with a publisher called Big Fish, and they were looking for casual games, and you know they needed developers to help them out. The owner saw one of the games I made, and he really thought that I could build a career out of this. And that's actually how I started. There was just one problem. At home, Making games is not really a job. You know, growing up as a, a Chinese family in America, you're only allowed to have like four different professions. You can be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, and accountant. So when I told my parents, hey, I, I want to build games, they're like, don't waste your time and money in this. Steve's parents became supportive when he was covering his college tuition with money he earned from creating games. But as graduation day approached... You know, like That's a nice hobby you have. Just make sure after you graduate, find a normal engineering job. Steve obviously didn't end up becoming an engineer. Instead, he brought his company Blue Tea Games to Hong Kong and ran it for 10 years. 
At one point, the company grew to as many as 50 people. And then smartphones came along, and that was when the PC gaming industry really got turned on its head. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, our industry got like, disrupted by iPhones and iPads. Um, this was PC games. PC, okay. PC yeah. games uh, and mobile games. Mm. So, you know, I saw the company went from its peak and then just dropped all the way till, you know, there was only a few people left. And I took uh, one of my core guys and said, hey, let's, let's push again. Let's make a new industry. But this time we would do it right. Because at Blue Tea, we did basically, we follow what was popular and we try to incrementally innovate. And it works for a very niche business. But if you want to, say, own the platform, you want to be the trailblazer, um, you cannot make incremental innovation. You have to take these really bold leaps that either you're right or you're very wrong. And the only time you can do that is to find an industry that is so new that no one really knows what it is. The industry that Steve decided to settle on was virtual reality. At the time, there was a lot of buzz around VR and mixed reality and the potential it had for entertainment, thanks to companies like Oculus and Magic Leap. So what was your first experience with VR? The first time I experienced VR was at my friend's house in 2014. That's when the first Oculus like developer kit uh, was available from Kickstarter. And when I tried it, like everything was very basic at that time. And I thought, man, VR sucks, right? And I just never thought about it. Um, but, you know, a few years later, after Facebook bought VR and VR was like talk of the town, I tried it again and I felt like it was getting to a place that you can really build content for VR. But, you know, when I tried to consume VR, it was still like, hey, it's not really that fun. You know, we've been building games for a long time, like narrative experiences, like it's all about immersion. But how can you be immersed when you're in a consumer VR and you really can't even see your full body? I thought, I thought that was like a, like a spark of a beginning where we thought, wait a minute, can we actually build a technology where you and your friends are in full body VR and you can interact with one another? And that was the start. To see if Steve's games are really as immersive as he says they are, I decided that I had to experience it for myself. You can be the leader. Me? Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, I'm just okay. going to support you. What should I write? SCMP. SCMP, okay. That's a good name. SCMP. And then one of mine, Zen. Like that. Okay. Okay, start. Yeah. First, we needed to put on sensors so that the motion tracking cameras could identify us. We had to wear five sensors in total, one on each arm, one on each leg and one on our heads, so that the camera can identify our entire body movement. This is for your um, left and right arm. Okay. Okay, and now this is for your left ankle. If you're very short-sighted like me, um, don't ankle, worry, yeah. because they have a range of different glasses that they can insert into the VR headset to help with your vision. Like minus seven? Like seven, yeah, okay, we have seven for you. Minus seven and 7.5. Yeah, How about minus 7.5? We're very prepared. <laughs> and we're ready. Zip it up. Okay. At this point, we walk into the green room. So it's literally an entire room that's painted green. It is one big green screen, essentially. So this is where the magic happens. You have the motion tracking cameras on the top here. You wear like a custom haptic vest where you can feel the world around you. We use like a wireless backpack to process who you are as a character. 
and pretty soon once you're inside VR you can able to see like your whole full body. So after a short but very fun tutorial. Oh are you are you shooting me? Yeah I'm shooting you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the game finally starts. Okay, so let's high five. See you guys let's high five. The game we're playing is called Ember Sky, which is set in Hong Kong in 2088. Basically, Steve and I were two robots in a futuristic skyscraper fighting evil robots and massive gross giant bugs because they really wanted this special package that we were supposed to deliver. It felt so real that it triggered my acrophobia. Oh my god, this is super real, I cannot. I have fear of heights. You have fear of heights? We're just zombies. I mean, I've played VR games before, but it was nothing like what I had experienced at Sandbox. I totally could see what Steve meant by full immersion. I mean, I could see my arms and legs as if I was a real robot, and it literally felt like I was standing on the edge of a very high skyscraper. I think this is one of those things where you actually have to experience it for yourself. Oh my god, this is super cool, Steve! Thank you. I'm so impressed. My mind is blown right now. Oh, wait till you see. Oh my god. Wow. Yeah, you can kind of look outside and you can see how far and how high you are up. Oh my god. <laughs> this is crazy. Like, I now, Sandbox has seven studios like this across Asia and North America. It has come a long way from when it was just a small scrappy office in Causeway Bay in Hong Kong. So in the beginning of Sandbox, I got in um, investment monies from a group of friends. Okay. And I think it was pretty easy back then. In 2016, a lot of people want to put money into VR. And I told the team, I mean, I told my friends like, hey, you know, I've been doing games all my life. I think VR is going to work. So do you believe in me? And then I had like six, seven guys and they're like, yes. So we're going to do a, uh, what we call like a low risk bet and just make a consumer game. But I'm also going to do something on the side is, is it like a big bet? It's like a full body VR experience that um, will be like the matrix. So it turned out the small bet didn't work out because it was just not a viable ecosystem to build consumer uh, VR games. So we had nothing left but to make the big bet and then we pitched to investors. And it sucked because people expected VR to blow up. People kind of expected it to be like mobile, right? Um, not only didn't it blow up like in 2016, but the um, turn rate was amazingly high. So turn rate, turn rate being that people that use it and then they stop using it. So um, there was a data, 75% of all users, this was data back in 2017, like 75% of all users stopped using a VR headset within a month. Okay. So what was... What was the reason for that, do you think, was just that at the time it was just simply the headsets were not good enough yet? So there was a couple of reasons. One is inherently using VR, there's a lot of friction, right? You have to uh, make sure this is plugged into your computer, turn on the computer, uh, put on the headset, put on the headphone, turn on the game, and then you play the experience. So that's a huge friction. And second of all, um, there weren't content in VR that I felt that people really want to go back to again and again and again and again, like what we call like the killer apps, you know. So it, these two combinations just make it very difficult for people to use VR on a regular basis. 
In 2016, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of exuberance for virtual reality because people really thought that it was going to be a medium of entertainment for the future. But then in 2017, it became like a nuclear winter. Investors had lost confidence in virtual reality and being based in Hong Kong, Steve didn't have a lot of investors to pitch to either. Everything seemed to be falling apart. So the, all these factors kind of combined to make it impossible for us to actually raise any money. So, you know, I told all our, my existing investor, like, we might need to shut down. And then what happened was, I just felt like it wasn't fair. I just, it didn't feel right because, uh, you know, we're this scrappy team. We did everything we felt was in the right direction. And all we're missing is the money to actually bring this to a full product, right? So I told my team that, you know, this is something that is very unfortunate because we're gonna have to shut this company down. Um, but we all work so hard on it and I feel like we're heading in the right direction. This is what VR should be. I am willing to invest in all the money I have that I saved up for the last 10 years because I believe this is the right future and we have to fight for it. Um, but in order for us to do that, you all have to agree with me to fight for this together. We have to work seven days a week. I have to cut everyone's pay. Um, but this is the only way for us to get there. And then if you agree to take this bet, just raise your hand. And if anyone says no, I have no choice but to shut the company down. And then they all go like, okay, let's make this work. Did you ever have any doubt that maybe you're wrong? Oh, absolutely. Um, I felt like um, there was a very high chance that we we're gonna fail. And I told the team that, I was like, hey, it's like you roll a coin, but it's not like a 50-50 coin. You roll a coin and maybe 90% of chance, you will just fail. But I told them, but that 10%, if it just lands on that, you know, that 10%, you know, it's not like you just double what you get. You can 10,000 times it. Are you willing to make that bet, right? And then I told them, you know, we don't get much chance in life to actually make bets that can have this much of a multiple. And even if we fail, at least we have a war story that we can look up to one day and say, at least we tried. So what happened after, you know, this period of time where they all agreed to be on board and you had put in, what, 10 years of savings? And I guess what happened after that was we worked seven days a week. The consumer has to be the one to validate us or discredit us. We cannot count on investors. And the first thing we did was like, we worked backwards. Like we have about a few months to build a game. What kind of game can you build in, you know, three or four months that has mass appeal? That's very easy. That was when zombies were Zombies, <laughs> zombie was the easiest thing, right? The world is super dark. When it's super dark, you don't have to spend a lot of time on art, right? And who do you get to be? You get to be SWAT units. Great, everyone can be identical. We just color code you differently. Like we think about what can you do with our technology? Well, you can put your hand on your friend's shoulder. Why not make it that when your friend's injured, you put your hand on the shoulder to save them, right? And we track like one-on-one -on -one accurately. So what we can do is when rats come and they jump on your body, you can brush them off with your hand. You can step on them. Like that type of craft isn't very expensive, but it was super important for us to distinguish from other people, right? Steve and his team worked non-stop with a pittance of a salary for four months before they had their first demo. He invited one of his best friends, also a gamer, to try it out. It's like, you know, the art's not the level of PlayStation and I feel like this, this can be done and that can be done. And when I heard it, I was pretty disheartened, but I appreciate his honesty, right? And, and then he's like, you know what, let me get more people to come. And he brought his wife. She couldn't stop screaming. Like the neighbors open, like knock on our door, it's like, hey, is everything okay? We heard a woman screaming in here. Um, and then 
that's when I want to look at the guys like, I think we have something. Mm. Um, which is actually very eye-opening because when we released Deadwood Mansion, half the customers were women. We saw more people scream and react, both men and women. They would curse. They would, they would be like a, the, the true self, right, in this experience. And I just realized, hey, they forget they're inside VR. This is like real life to them. Steve decided it would be fun if customers could receive like a short video filming the entire process of them playing the game. And many of these videos started making their way online to sites like YouTube. One day, a popular social media news site reposted one of these videos and it went viral. We're all left! You're going down! That really was a tipping point for Sandbox because from then on, the orders started flooding in. People react to it, like, oh, I gotta play it too. And then they started calling us, they just started booking. And I just remember because when we opened a slot, we only made two weeks ahead of time for people to book. And in a few hours, they were all booked out. Wow. Then we opened for one month. And then a day later, it was all booked out. Then we opened for three months. We sold three months worth of tickets in like a couple weeks. Wow. And then that's when we thought, oh, wow, we have something which is really rare in the startup world, which is a product market fit. Yeah. Sandbox had literally been pulled back from the brink of death, and nothing makes fundraising easier than gaining insane traction. Soon after, they closed a much-needed seed round from investors like Alibaba. Steve even got the chance to demo his game to Jack Ma and Kanye West. Um, Kanye, I think for him, it was like, he wanted to see this as a medium of expression. How can you create messages with this type of medium? And he's very excited about new ways to show different type of how art works. Okay. Like he, he resonates with different artists and he feels like what we do is like a new art form. What about Jack Ma? Well, I think when Jack Ma came, he didn't really like put in a headset, but okay. he was able to watch other people play. By the way, just as a disclaimer, Alibaba is the parent company of the South China Morning Post. And I think the first thing was he just saw what we built. He was just very curious because I think that's the nature of like being an entrepreneur, just being very curious about things in general. And he's like, oh, can you actually build this on a ship? I'm like, yeah. And then he and then he's just, has, I think his eye just lit up. Like you basically have a, a product that can be built anywhere. Steve might have gambled his own life savings and won, but he does not recommend that. Gamble your investors' money, not yours, he says. As an advice for entrepreneur, um, I don't recommend investing your life savings. But You're, it worked for you. It worked for me, but for us, like we, we were fortunate. Any other advice for young entrepreneurs? Um, be more comfortable with failing. Failure is a really good learning lesson, and to be comfortable in it is to be able to grow from it and improve and keep doing it. I keep doing it. And in my world, I have not met anyone who's been successful that hasn't failed hard. What Steve said really reminded me of the last episode we did for Inside China Tech, where we talked about Silicon Valley's secret sauce for innovation. If you haven't listened to it, you definitely should. William Shockley, who is one of the early founding fathers of Silicon Valley, said this in 1969. And I counted recently and I find I have some 85 issued patents, which makes me at least close to being in the major league on numbers. Um, most of these require uh, many failures to accomplish. One must, uh, it's my own experience that to uh, do creative work, one must overextend oneself, one must count on falling on his face. 
on getting into difficulties. One must learn from these failures and not be stopped by them. But, one, uh, but if one is taught that everything is neat and orderly and one never gets into a mess when trying to do anything new, then he will be so conservative that I don't think he'll break new ground. I think the big contribution that can be made, uh, maybe the biggest educational contribution that could be made to the creativity of people is to uh, persuade them that they shouldn't worry about making mistakes. This will be inevitable if they are going to really do anything new. That's it for our episode for Inside China Tech today. We hope you've enjoyed it. This episode was produced and edited by Yang Yang, and we'd like to thank Steve Zhao of Sandbox VR and our intern, King Wu. If you're interested to meet like-minded people, join our private Facebook group called Inside China Tech. Finally, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Zensu. Tweet at me, let me know what you think about this episode, and if you have any suggestions for what we should talk about in upcoming episodes, we're always happy to hear them. See you next time. Bye!